This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Denver went all out in its bid to host the 1976 Winter Olympics, creating a promotional film as far back as 1964. Nestled against the great Rocky Mountain range lies the city of Denver, United States candidate for host city to the 1976 Winter Olympic Games. Denver was chosen, but not everyone wanted the event, fearing the cost and the toll on the environment. There was a statewide vote, and Colorado withdrew. The 76 games ended up in Austria. Fast forward to today, and Denverites are considering a new bid. Rob Cohen, whose day job is leading a financial firm, was tapped to head the Exploratory Committee. And Rob, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Good morning. The governor and Denver's mayor initiated this effort. You're looking at a bid for 2026 or 2030, both winter games, of course. What could the Olympics do for Denver and Colorado? Like, what might this state get out of it? Well, what we're really trying to do as the Exploratory Committee is look at Um, First of all, could we host the game? So do we have the logistics and the venues and the capabilities to do it? But the second piece is should we host the games, which is really get to the question of is it something that the public wants and what are the benefits of it? And so some of the things that we're looking are, for instance – Uh, If we had an Olympic village, could we use it to solve the affordable housing problem that we have in Colorado, both in the city as well as in the mountains? Because you'd need sites both in Denver and up uh, near the resorts, I I suspect. Right. And both of those communities are struggling with affordable housing, employee housing in the mountain, and then obviously um, within the city and county of Denver as well as metro-wide. Also, transportation is a major issue in our state. It's hard to get up to the mountains now, let alone with Olympic Games. Yeah. And so in Olympic Games, every current Olympic Games, with the exception of one, has used a four-lane interstate or something smaller to utilize the Olympic Games. It's a 17-day event. So we don't really need to change I-70 for the Olympic Games itself. But could it be a catalyst to lead to discussions that help us solve a long-term problem that we need to solve for the everyday life of the people who live in Colorado? All right. What else do you think the benefits could be for this state? Well, I mean, besides the quality of life, having events like this is something that communities rally around and create um, excitement for them and and pride in their community. It it creates regional cooperation amongst uh, governmental entities to work together in ways that they're not used to. It has economic benefits, obviously, if uh, people come here and uh, and spend uh, money that we can then utilize to help our own community. Well, I think there are a lot of folks who would fear that there aren't long-term economic benefits, that in fact host cities have lost money in Olympic history. Yeah, I think people look tend to look at the, the stories of cities that have lost money. And uh, seems natural that they would do that. Yeah, right? it's, it's natural, but they don't look at the cities that have made money. And so in, since 1960, every city in the United States that's hosted the games has ended with a surplus uh, in their operating budget for hosting the games. So Salt Lake City ended up with a $90 million surplus that they're still using today from the 2002 games uh, to benefit their community and the citizens that live there. Are there economic deal breakers that that mean this deal would not go forward? That is to say, um, is there some threshold for, you know, the amount of tax money that would go towards hosting the games that you're just unwilling to cross? Yeah, no question. The the Exploratory Committee has created criteria, and they're very strong criteria. And one of that is around the venue constructions. We don't want to build any venues that we wouldn't need 
uh, regardless if we hosted the games. And so there's any, also a history of, of venues being built for the Olympics and then sitting in decay in the decades that follow. Correct. And so any venues that we don't need permanently, we one of the deal breakers for us is they have to be built as temporary venues so they can be uh, built and then taken down. If you look at things like the swimming trials that take place in Omaha, Nebraska, they actually build a swimming pool inside a basketball arena. And then when the event is over, they sell the swimming pool to a university or a college who's looking for a pool. So we're looking at those same kinds of models here. Could there be an after use for the temporary venues? And then obviously the other deal breaker for us is we're looking at a privately financed games. Privately and, financed entirely? Not a, not a tax dollar going towards something like this? Well, it's always difficult when you say not a tax dollar because even events that you have here every day, like a concert or a Broncos game or whatever, there's police support and fire support and there's city support that goes into that. But as far as what we're looking at is no taxpayer support into the operating budget of the Olympic Games. And we're trying to fund that. Uh, Part of the new model that a lot of people don't know, there's the old story, which happened in 1976. And there's the new story of what's going on with the Olympic movement now. The IOC now contributes money to the winning cities. So in in 2026, they've already announced that they're going to contribute $950 million to whatever city wins that Olympic Games. So we would use that You would use ticket revenue. You would use merchandising and sponsorship dollars um, to be able to fund the operating budgets of the games. And so if there's a surplus, as you said, there could be. Whose surplus would that be? That would be the community surplus. The communities. the, the The goal of the committee is to look at can we privately finance the games, create a surplus that then would be put back to use to create legacy in our own community. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're talking about a possible, possible bid for the Olympics in Colorado. Uh, That would occur in 2026 or 2030 for those games. Rob Cohen joins me. He was tapped by the governor and Denver's mayor to head the Exploratory Committee. I want to say that you are uh, launching a website this week for folks to comment on this potential bid. We put out our own call on Twitter, not scientific by any means, but most who responded told us that they oppose the idea. Here's a tweet we got from Eric Elkins of Denver. No thanks. It's a disaster for infrastructure and a drain on the economy. It's a vanity play. And Denver is a gem that doesn't need the extra attention. Generally, I'd say there was a theme in these tweets about con- you know, concerns over more growth. D- Denver, the front range, already growing at such a fast clip that this would only exacerbate things. How do you respond to that, Rob Cohen? Well, there's a couple, there's a lot embedded in in those comments. So first of all, as far as growth, Denver voted down the Olympics in 1976, and we grew anyway. Other cities have hosted the Olympic Games in the United States, like a Lake Placid. I'm not picking on them, but they haven't had the growth that Denver um, has seen. People don't move to cities because you host Olympic Games, and communities don't grow because of the Olympic Games. So you're saying there's no evidence to support that a Games brings growth or not? There's no correlation between an Olympic Games and growth. Has that been studied? I don't know about a scientific study, okay. but um, we've certainly looked at cities that have hosted the games and, uh, and taken a, a look at that and, uh, and really tried to figure it out. So we mentioned earlier that Denver won the 76 bid, then pulled out. A while back, I spoke with an economist, Victor Matheson, who has studied mega sporting events. And he says Denver started a trend. You know, cities like Boston, Toronto, Oslo, Stockholm decided against a bid because of costs. 
Uh, do you think that there are still hurt feelings at the USOC, a reluctance to choose Denver because we sort of left the games at the altar? We've certainly, as part of our processes, ha- have had discussions with both the IOC and the USOC. And what do they um, sound like? And uh, there, there are certainly people who still talk about it, but most people have said, you know, that was 50 years ago. And um, the Olympic movement is different. Denver's different. If people look at Denver back in 1976, we essentially had one professional sports team with one venue. The Denver Nuggets were part of the ABA, so they weren't even in the NBA today. And then you fast forward today, and uh, we have a lot of the infrastructure that we've built for our everyday life. And and the new model of the Olympic Games is they're looking for communities where they can plug into the infrastructure that's already been built in the community. As opposed at, to starting from scratch. As opposed to starting from scratch. USA Gymnastics and USA Swimming have been rocked by sexual abuse. Of course, the doping scandals go deep. Is it just less desirable to host the Games than it used to be? Is there a, a sort of patina? Well, I think there are aspects of that um, Certainly nobody um, feels good about those events and what's happened. But I think what people miss is if you go back and look at the Olympic values, if you look at the Olympic Charter that was written in 1896, it talks about fair play, men and women competing equally. It talks about discrimination, so regardless of race and religion. It talks about um, clean sports, so anti-doping. And it talks about truce, laying down arms to compete in the name of sport. And so even today, we look at Korea, where you have North and South Korea um, next week going to march together in the Olympic Games. Um, They're going to put a unified uh, team on the ice to compete in hockey. And so these are values that I think resonate that are probably maybe more important in today's world than they ever have been. And so uh, I think that you have to look at both sides of it and really understand the values and what's good in the Olympics. And you also have to understand what's not good. What if there's no snow in Colorado? Uh, the majority of the events, obviously snow is important, but uh, most of the events, they want man-made snow at a certain texture and a certain temperature. So even when you look at skiing, most of the downhill and alpine types of races are done on ice uh, as opposed to true snow. And so uh, they can do that with man-making abilities if we really get that desperate. Uh, let me leave you with this question. Do you want the games personally? Well, I've told everyone, I uh, I love sports, I love the Olympic Games, but I love Denver more. And so um, I take this job very seriously. Everyone seems to think we've already made our decision. We truly want the input of the community. We want to make a decision that's in the best interest in Colorado for today and the future. So would that be a percentage thing? In other words, if the comments come in, and you're not revealing the comments yet, it's still pretty early. If the comments come in and they're 90% overwhelmingly against the Games or for the Games, would that be what the decision is based on? Or is there some... If there's uh, overwhelming evidence that the community does not want the games, then the games would not be successful here. But what we want to make sure is that we're not only hearing from the minority people who are in favor of or the minority people who are against, but that we really have a good pulse on what everybody in the state of Colorado is interested in. All right. At CPR.org, we'll post a link so you can offer your input. Thanks, Rob, for being with us. Appreciate you very much having us on. Rob Cohen is CEO of IMA Financial Group based in Denver. And uh, more importantly, for our sake here, he chairs the Olympic and Paralympic Winter Games Exploratory Committee.
In a rare interview, the head of immigration enforcement in Colorado says his job is much clearer under President Trump compared to the Obama years. CPR's Allison Sherry joins us to talk about her conversation with ICE's Jeffrey Lynch and how some of the policy changes confirm what immigration advocates and lawyers have been telling us over the past year. Allison, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ryan. What did Lynch have to say about how things have changed? Well, I think he would say, plain and simple, any contact with law enforcement now could be grounds for an ICE pickup. If you are here illegally um, and you have a broken taillight or something, you could be deported. And that's changed. You know, under Obama, there were exemptions. There were people who uh, ICE was supposed to sort of overlook. Um, And that's not the the case anymore. Uh, ICE officers or people out in the field now have the discretion to decide how they're enforcing the law. Um, And, you know, so if you were, you know, here for if you were here and you got picked up for a DUI or something, um, you could that could be grounds for going into de- de- detention, even if you hadn't been convicted. Here's Lynch talking about how much clearer it is for him and his officers. We're now enforcing the law based on the law books. We're no longer enforcing the law by agency policy or memos or directives. Every alien that's here illegally subject to removal are on the on the board for for targeting. So the bottom line is he would see this as simpler. It's clearer than the old days. There's, you know, there are not exceptions anymore. I'm sure that other people have different perspectives on this change from ICE. Of course. You know, in the in the reporting of the story, I talked to nearly a half dozen immigration lawyers about how their jobs have changed in the last year, how they've shifted advice to clients. And they would say now they're much more likely to sort of spell out a worst case scenario, that there are a lot more potential consequences for an action. They would still say, you know, if you're pulled over, don't skip a court date or a probation hearing, but you should expect that an ICE agent might be there waiting for you. Um, you know, they try to give people this full scope of risk. Michaela Goring, she's the executive director of the Rocky Mountain Immigrant Advocacy Network. She's also a lawyer. And she feels like ICE is picking up anyone they can find. Anyone who is undocumented in the United States is is in danger, is a threat, um, regardless of, you know, the equities of their case, of how long they've been here, of family members who are U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents. That prosecutorial discretion has been completely eliminated. Now, in your conversation with this Colorado ICE official, Jeff Lynch, did he say anything about how his agents handle DACA recipients when they encounter them? Yes. So as a reminder, DACA, the Trump administration has gotten rid of DACA. It expires in a couple of months. Congress is working on this, but they haven't come up with a solution yet. So until then, though, Lynch says he still views people with DACA status as like as here legally. That's sort of like having a work permit. Legally. okay. Legally. Yes. Um, They wouldn't just deport someone who has a has a has this work permit. But um, they would say anyone who has a former DACA recipient who had contact with the law, maybe forgot to reapply for this work permit or the status um, or maybe, you know, got a DWAI or something and is no longer has this has DACA, they are not treated differently than anyone else. This has been sort of a big sticking point, like are dreamers treated differently than other people? And ICE would say no. So it sounds like the guiding factor for immigration enforcement in Colorado now is that any brush with the law is enough to attract ICE's attention. Does that mean uh, any arrest or does ICE wait for a conviction? No, they don't wait for a conviction. This is actually a significant change from the Obama administration. And they used to sort of wait for a conviction to pick someone up, and now they don't have to. 
Um, and, you know, if someone was arrested for a DUI or something, they might place it. ICE would then, and they were here illegally, ICE might place a detainer on them. And while they await due process, uh, they might, you know, inter- ICE might try to deport them or put them into detention while they're waiting on that. Um, they also are working a lot more with parole officers. So if you're going in for a hearing, I kind of mentioned this earlier, and someone goes in for a check-in appointment uh, and they don't have documentation, they might, they might, uh, that might be grounds for deportation. Um, in fact, ICE and immigration lawyers say this happens a lot. Arrests and deportations are up in Colorado over the past year. Deportations have more than doubled, according to your reporting, Allison. Does that reflect national numbers? Well, Colorado, I should just explain, is a bit of an outlier with the deportations uh, being up. Oh. We have uh, this huge uh, detention center here in Aurora. So anyone who's apprehended at the border, a lot of people are actually moved up to Aurora um, for, you know, after they are picked up at the border. So when they are deported from our detention facility, it would show that they're being deported from Colorado. It doesn't mean they were living here to begin with. Oh, I see. But one thing I did learn is ICE has significantly expanded the capacity at that detention facility in the last sort of about year and a half, two years. Um, they're now at about 800 beds. Um, and some immigration lawyers say that Colorado is sort of a ground zero for immigration enforcement. But uh, Lynch would say they're not doing anything differently anywhere else. Did he talk about any myths in this climate, anything that isn't true he's hearing? Yeah, he did talk about this. He said a year ago, you know, right when Trump took office, there were sort of rumors of checkpoints and random raids and that sort of thing. He wants to dispel that. He'd say that criminals are still the top priority for ICE agents. And we did talk about how they define criminals. It could just be someone who was arrested. Um, and, and And that, you know, anyone who sort of touches the law is still probably going to be in sort of their crosshairs. They don't have dragnet set up over town or anything. And they're also not currently going into sort of, quote, unquote, safe zones or schools or churches. And a number of people are living in churches here to avoid deportation in Colorado. And I actually went to one of those. And churches treat it as a real safe, secure place. I, I that The doors are locked. There are volunteers sitting at the door. You have to kind of check in. They have to know you're coming. And then they'll let you in. So, you know, I think churches are sort of on, on guard for ICE just to come in. But so far, they're not doing that. The other thing I do want to say that he would say is that when ICE arrests someone, they still have due process. Here's Lynch talking about that. I can't emphasize enough that even though an individual is an illegal alien, they have full due process in the court system. When I make an arrest, I have to issue a charging document. Uh, these folks are going to see an immigration judge. They have full appeal rights, all, actually all the way to the Supreme Court. And I think coming out of that idea, lawyers would actually emphasize the same thing, that they would encourage anyone here illegally to talk to someone, be honest about their story. And if they do get picked up, that would probably be the worst. That would be the worst thing that could happen, but that they still have due process under the law. Thanks for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. CPR's Allison Sherry, who landed a rare interview with the head of immigration enforcement in Colorado. You're about to hear a 911 call. A woman with cerebral palsy sees a fire encroaching on her bedroom. And I can't get out of my room. I'm trapped. Tanya? Tanya Bell was living in what's called a host home in Arvada. Her hosts were being paid to take care of her. Instead, they contributed to her death. 
An investigation by Rocky Mountain PBS finds these homes are largely unregulated and that while there are plenty of capable hosts, there's also abuse and neglect. Reporter Lori Jane Gleha joins me. Welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell me more about what happened to Tanya Bell. I think this was in 2016. Yeah, Tanya was 39 years old, and as you said, she had cerebral palsy, and she was in her bedroom. She used a wheelchair to get around. And the night that she died, her host home provider and that woman's live-in partner were smoking on the front porch. And they discarded their cigarettes and went to bed down in the basement. And later that night, one of the cigarettes, one of the butts caught fire. And it just caused the home to go into in up in flames. Tanya, who was in the front bedroom, right near where that front porch was, was able to smell the smoke and had the peace of mind to figure out how to get a call to 911. And she was on the phone and it's really devastating to listen to that phone call because I put in a public records request to be able to get it. And it goes on for several minutes and she essentially loses consciousness on the phone. She's asking for help. Um, you can hear the fire crews trying to respond coming in the distance, but they just couldn't get there in time. And she she basically died. She did not have the wherewithal herself to escape the situation. I also think that it was impossible for her to like get out of the window it was it was locked or closed or obstructed or something. Yeah, the front window I don't think was one that was able to open in mm. her room. There was another gentleman also that was receiving care. He was also um wheelchair bound um and he could not he had trouble getting out too. So, um but he did get out and he ended up surviving, but there were um Tanya did not make it. Were the hosts found responsible? What happened in that case was they were charged and then they they were found responsible for having this negligence um, because of the cigarette situation. And then this sparked a whole new conversation about whether more could have been done to prevent this, not just with this careless act of how the cigarette was thrown away, um, but whether there should have been more regulation, more oversight, more things that could have been in place to prevent this or to alert people that there was a fire or to actually prevent a fire. So presumably some sort of inspection of the home or criteria for hosts. Let's step back. What's the idea behind host homes? Like I've heard of group homes, but I I hadn't until... Uh, seeing your reporting, heard of host homes. Right. So host homes are similar to group homes, but they're smaller than group homes. A host home, the idea of a host home is for someone with intellectual and developmental disabilities, somebody who may need extra support. There's varying levels of support that you might need. You might have trouble making your breakfast or getting ready for work. Um, You might need 24-hour care. So this idea is, is that people who have intellectual and developmental disabilities can go into a typical community. You or I could open our home, invite someone in, you and you receive Medicaid funding to help offer support to that person. Okay. Um, these homes only have generally two people in them, two or fewer, but you can have three, and that's the most that you can have. But these homes are not licensed by the state. Um, so there are different rules and uh, basic regulations that exist, but they're not licensed by the state. But yet they receive government funding in order to operate. Through Medicaid, you said. Medicaid funding, yep. Uh, are hosts making bank? Uh, <laughs> or is it a modest payment? What's the... Well, one of the cases we looked at, a woman, uh, another, we profiled several different cases in our story. And one of the women was making $7,770 a month for the three men that she had in her home. So some of these people, it is a full-time job hmm. really to do this. 
the woman in Tanya's case, I'm not sure exactly how much her monthly income was, but that was what she was doing. She was the care provider for these two people, and that's how she the money comes in. And in the state of Colorado, I looked into how much money is going out. They pay $126 million on average uh, every year for about 3,000 people, adults, to receive daily host home services. So would you call that a, a modest payment, a generous payment? I think some, I, I guess it depends on who you are and uh-huh. how you live your life. Uh-huh. But I think some people do make a living off of this. They This is what they do for their living. So, How do hosts connect with uh, potential hosties or clients or... or, or co-residents. Right. And I should I should also mention too the the point of this is is that so people with intellectual and developmental disabilities can get out of institutions. So if you need extra support that you wouldn't have to go to an institution that you could live in a home and live freely. And so what happens is there's private agencies called program approved service agencies and they are the ones that are facilitate host homes. Sort of middlemen. Yeah. So if you're interested in becoming a host home provider, you can go and inquire with them and they have their own rules and regulations that they have to set up and requirements that they may do. They may do a background check on you. They may do certain training techniques. I think the woman that took care of Tanya had to go through a couple um, things of training in order to become what she's doing. But you say they may. In other words, it's not uniform across the board. It is not uniform across the board. There is no state required regulation as far as what everybody is required to do. Every individual program-approved service agency comes up with their own specifications and qualifications for the host home provider. Okay. So um, this is from your report, a husband and wife describing uh, finding their son at death's door after he was abused in a host home. He was like in fetal position on his side, um, moaning. Then it became clear that the only cause for that would be a lack of, of provided water and since he had lost so much weight, lack of food. How is abuse discovered? So the the problem with this gentleman, he ended up becoming so dehydrated that they ended up having to take him to the hospital. The family believes that the host home provider did not give him enough water, did not give him enough food, as you heard the the father just say. And that was written later in a report in the state that there was clearly some sort of lack of water given to this guy. The provider in that case, you know, denied that he did anything wrong. And what ended up happening in that case is that the private agency that was responsible for him parted ways with him. Um, And then the father grew concerned that, you know, how is anyone else ever supposed to find out about what happened in this case, unless they knew very specifically how to ask for this information. It's very difficult for anyone to get any information. So this person could possibly go on to take care of someone else and and, and continue on in the system, and no one would ever know that this incident had happened in, in this home. I want to underscore that you found capable host homes. Oh, absolutely. And that's one thing to really point out. I think also if you talk to several advocates, they'll say the host home situation has been a very good thing for many people. In fact, most people probably have good experiences in host homes. Um, but the, again, the idea of these folks being in the community, not institutionalized. Absolutely. And, you know, to be able to live freely and feel like they're part of a community is one of the most important things. Uh, hearing that uh, clip from a family member makes me wonder why these folks aren't with their families? Why wouldn't they be living with their that's parents, re- for instance? That's a really good question. A lot of people ask that. And and the issue is, depending on what your needs are, it, it can become a lot 
more of a difficult thing to do, especially when someone gets older, when you're an adult. You know, as a child, you have certain needs, but as an adult, you have other needs, and it can become become a full-time job. And it's difficult if you are someone that's working, or maybe you're getting elderly yourself, and it's hard to take care of your own self. So Mm. it's nice to be able to have someone that is focused on the care of your loved ones so that you know that they're getting what they need. This can take the pressure off families. Absolutely. Presumably before that, when these folks were younger, did a lot of the caretaking. Absolutely. In your report, you mentioned that Colorado is actually out of compliance with a federal law that is meant to protect at-risk adults. What what is this law and what's the state doing to get into compliance? Yes, it's a conflict-free case management law. And I just will say this is a very complicated, complex system. This system has been set up for for many, many years. And in 2014, the federal government said, hey, look, you got to come into compliance with this new rule. And basically it's saying if you are someone that is recommending services for someone with intellectual and developmental disabilities, you cannot also provide those services. That's a conflict of interest. Exactly. And we noticed this happened in a similar situation happened in one of the cases we profiled where an agency recommended and oversaw the services uh, that were provided to a gentleman, but also was affiliated with a company that provided those services. And one of the family members was concerned, saying, look, I, I think they were kind of put on blinders for years. They had been familiar with this other company, and maybe they just weren't watching as closely, and they missed this case of neglect that was happening. So the state is working on coming into compliance. They weren't in compliance. And then the federal government sent them a letter a couple of years ago saying, hey, look, or actually, I think it was in 2016 that they sent this letter. You could be at risk of losing federal funding if you don't come into compliance. So this last year, they, um, the legislature passed a law that will put them on a trajectory to come into compliance. But it's going to take five years. With the idea that when that is complete, it will be a little bit more of a watchdog role, less of a conflict of interest, and perhaps improve the system. Any other talk of changes in the wake of your reporting? Yes, there has been. After we started talking to the state agency, the one that pays for these Medicaid funds, Uh they had put together this memo because there's a couple state legislators that are now asking questions. Um, Specifically, when we're talking about the Tanya Bell fire, there's concerns that were brought to light by the fire marshal there. He felt like group home. If you're getting paid, if you're getting money from the government to operate this home, why isn't there more oversight? Why aren't there more regulations? Inspections even. Yeah. So the state agency put together this memo saying, hey, look, we are good. we are actively looking, reviewing our regulations right now. We're going to have a stakeholder meetings in the beginning of 2018. We want to discuss whether we can bolster these regulations. How can we strengthen them? How can we improve the monitoring of the private agencies um, and also improve fire safety? And one more time, how many people in host homes across the state? So there's about 3,000 adults, but there's a, there's fewer host homes So because there's multiple people multiple. sometimes in, in homes. Thanks for helping us understand this. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Mary Jane Gleha is an investigative reporter for Rocky Mountain PBS, and we talked about her investigation into host homes. There will be a link to her reporting at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Maybe you heard that In-N-Out Burger is coming to Colorado. will be the seventh state for the burger chain, which has an almost cult-like following. Business reporter Stacey Perman calls In-N-Out the fast food chain that breaks all the rules. She wrote a book about the company. And Stacey, welcome to Colorado Matters. Thank you for having me. 
In-N-Out announced uh, its Colorado expansion late last year, and the first store will be in Colorado Springs, where there will also be a distribution center, and that could serve up to 50 restaurants. Uh, curiously, no time for, timeline for any of that. Um, so we can't say when these will open. Yet people are very excited already. Here are some comments from Reddit when the announcement came. Uh, this is a dream come true, says one person. What a time to be alive, says another. Is In-N-Out Burger overrated? I don't think so. I mean, I think the proof is in those comments. And those comments have been heard since the chain opened in 1948. And as they've done their glacial expansion, as you mentioned, Colorado is just the seventh state in about 70 years. I think um, the burgers are really good. It starts out with the burgers. The burgers and fries and shakes are really good. And then everything flows from that. We'll talk a little bit more about how In-N-Out Burger is breaking the rules of fast food. But I want to go back to 1948 when Esther and Harry Snyder started the company in Southern California. Uh, what made them want to open a burger joint? Well, it was it was kind of out of necessity. Um, they had come down after the war from Seattle. Harry had been in the Army. Uh, his wife, Esther, was actually in the Navy. She was a waves. And they put together this little business. They had some experience in food service. And if I can just take you back to this time in 1948, this was a period, you know, of post-war optimism and things were changing. The car culture was beginning, the highway system, and all these burger joints were opening up that had car hops and these elaborate um, architectural, you know, monstrosities, you know, a, a place uh, in the shape of a sombrero and you had <laughs> car hops on um, uh, roller skates that would pull up to the car and take your order and deliver it. But Harry and Esther had very little money, and they were able to get a, a tiny spit of land that was sort of a triangular shape in Baldwin Park. And so they opened up their burger place. And what they did, because they didn't have the money or the space for a big parking lot, Harry was a, an electronics enthusiast, a kind of an amateur ham radio guy. And he came up with this system for this two-way radio where cars would drive in, put place their order pull up to a, a tiny little stand, pick up their order, and drive off. And that was, for all intents and purposes, the nation's first drive through Oh, interesting. And and that was obviously related to his his military service, I gather. Well, actually, it was a little bit more just personal interest in electronics and, um, you know, kind of ham radio enthusiasm. Okay. So the Snyders opened a second store in 1951 in Covina, California, not even five miles from the original location, Baldwin Park. Uh, they opened three more the following year. And as they started to grow, I wonder what they looked for in new locations. Well, it's very interesting because kind of what happened in this period created the DNA that exists to this day for In-N-Out, even though it's, it's, it's much larger. So Harry was a very exacting fellow, and he had um, a couple of mottos. One was keep it simple, do one thing and do it well, and then quality, cleanliness, and service. So when they were looking for a place, first of all, he wanted to own the, the, the place outright. He didn't want to be in debt. That was kind of something from growing up in the Depression. Huh. 
And he wanted them to be close enough that he could go to all of them, know everybody that worked there. So they had to be in a, you know, a very close radius of each other. And he had very exacting standards of the people that worked there. So he wouldn't open up a new one until those two factors were in place, but also that he had trained somebody to manage the place the way he would have managed it if he was standing there himself, although he was often at these restaurants quite frequently. We learned recently that managers today of in-and-out restaurants earn something like $160,000. They're, they're well-paid. It's not just the managers. It's the associates across the board. And that, again, started with Harry and Esther in 1948. Uh, they believed a strong pillar of success was their employees, and they wanted to keep them happy, and they believed in paying them well. In fact, when they opened in 1948, I think minimum wage was around 75 cents an hour in California, and they paid their associates, they called them associates way back then, they didn't call them employees, a dollar an hour and a burger a shift. They gave them a burger a shift. They gave them bonuses when they thought they did well. They really promoted them. They rewarded hard work. And in many cases, they paid for people that worked for their um, their educations. Even as chains like McDonald's, Wendy's, uh, eventually I think Kentucky Fried Chicken grew rapidly, the Snyder's continued to expand in and out at a slow, steady pace. You refer to it as glacial. Then Harry was diagnosed with lung cancer. He died in 1976. Uh, by that time, there were nearly 20 in and outs. And uh, barely 25 years old, Harry's youngest son, Rich, took over the family business. Uh, how did things change? Things changed, you know, in some ways they changed a lot, and in some ways they didn't change much at all. Rich was, you're right, he was 25 years old. He was the youngest son, um, but he was kind of born to do this. And I think he took a look around and he had a real respect for what his parents had built. What he did was expand the chain without, you know, cutting corners. Um, it, it, it was very important for the family to keep in and out family owned. They had no interest in franchising or going through an IPO. But what he did is he made some changes in order to to affect that change. He professionalized management. For a lot of years, it was people that had worked. I mean, they still have people that worked there for 20, 30, 40 years. But he created In-N-Out University to professionalize management. He expanded uh, greater than uh, at a greater pace than his father. Um, during his father's time, most In-N-Outs were in peripheral suburbs. He started moving them into uh, more urban urban centers. In order to do that, he had to make some changes. Um, he wanted to open 10 a year instead of maybe one every few years. And so they had to start leasing property because they, 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 they didn't have the cash flow to own every property. Um, he also implemented the, the double drive-through. Um, there was so much volume. There's still so huh. much volume to this day that he implemented the double drive-through, which became kind of a blessing and a curse because while it became a signature part of In-N-Out Burger, most municipalities looked askance at it because it created it still creates enormous traffic snarls. Wherever they are. Yeah, and certainly wherever they open. I mean, the scenes in your book from openings of restaurants, uh, they require police presence and people wait for hours for an In-N-Out burger. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. And uh, with the announcement that In-N-Out is coming to Colorado, we're taking a look at the company with Stacey Perman. She wrote a book a while back called In-N-Out Burger, a behind-the-counter look at the fast food chain that breaks all the rules. I, I thought I might just read a little bit from the book. Um, you say that it's a menu that's barely changed since Harry Truman was president. No Mediterranean wraps, Caesar chicken salads, or children's menus. 
Facing the antiseptically clean open kitchen, customers saw that there were no heat lamps, freezers, microwaves, no heavy odor of grease and meat. There were no bags of flash frozen fries on site either. Rather, in a procedure that has gone unchanged since the chain first opened in 48, a cheery associate hand peels, cuts, and fries the raw Kennebec potatoes grown especially for the chain. So this speaks to the food and that you think this is what sets the company apart. Uh, They are doing a lot of things that fast food restaurants normally don't do. Almost everything, <laughs> I would say, um, is in opposition to what we know of today as as, as fast food. Uh, certainly, um, a, as as you described as in that passage in my book, there are no microwaves. Every order is made as soon as a ticket goes up. Um, they again, they don't franchise. Um, they uh, believe in uh, cleanliness. I mean, if to 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 such an extent, you could probably eat off the floors. Um, it's, it's an interesting experience and they do very little advertising. They don't have to because by and large, their customer base, you know, from 70 years to the present have done the heavy lifting. Um, as I discussed in the book, there's something I call like a conversion process. I mean, someone new to an area where there's an In-N-Out, they'll always say, Hey, have you tried In-N-Out burger? They'll bring them in and they'll initiate them, not just to, you know, their first burger, but how to order the burger, the secret menu. Um, as you mentioned, the menu hasn't changed since 1948. That was part of Harry's, um, you know, philosophy of keeping it simple. I mean, in that way, they can be laser focused on quality, but they don't have to make investments in, you know, new equipment for new kinds of products. And it keeps the customers focused on, you know, what's great about In-N-Out Burger. I mean, the the fries, like you said, come from these specially produced Kennebunk uh, potatoes. The the milkshakes use actual real ice cream. I mean, there's, you know, the, the they only use the best onions, the best um, tomatoes. In fact, um, they have their own commissaries that create their own beef patties. And those um, are in a, you know, like a 500 radius from the stores because they deliver them fresh every couple of days. In the early days, Harry used to stand over his butcher and watch them cut the beef. And at one point before he died, he bought a cattle ranch in California. And he thought, maybe I will just start the process from raising the cattle myself. But as the chain grew, that just became an impossible situation. Huh. But I'm just I'm pointing this out to describe, you know, the the uh, uh, effort that goes into quality is it, it cannot be um, underestimated. I was in California a while back and I stopped it in and out. Uh, and for the first time, I noticed... The food wrapping and cups have biblical references, like chapter and verse from the Bible. Uh, I understand that that was the youngest son Rich's doing. Yeah, Rich was a born-again Christian, and he made this um, decision. They're very subtle. Not everybody notices them, but there are um, these Bible passages, as you describe, in the wrappings and so forth. Um, he decided that, you know, this was important to him and and um, everybody, you know, there's so many burgers out there. This was a way to spread the word. It's interesting because there been there's been a little bit of controversy, not so much now, but so at the time when he did this um, and he stood firm and, you know, he didn't think um, as maybe many managers would today what this might mean, you know, public relations wise. And the interesting thing is um, you have a lot of consumers of, you know, every stripe of society that love In-N-Out Burger. And I guess in other instances with other um, 
stores or products or restaurants, something like like that might offend them. But with In-N-Out, they give it a pass because I think they believe in the quality of the, the place and that, you know, this is the real deal. It's something of a saga when you look at the family behind the company. So in 1993, Rich Snyder, along with a few other key players in the company, died in a plane crash. His older brother Guy took over, but his tenure didn't last long. He died, I think, in 99 from a drug overdose. His daughter Lindsay was in line to inherit in and out, but she was just a teenager when he died. So uh, there's a lot of internal turmoil after that, multiple lawsuits. The matriarch Esther took over for a while until her death. Lindsay's in charge now. I understand that the family's quite private. How was it to write a book about their company? Yes, it's an interesting question. They are pri- quite private. They don't do press. Um, they are, un- you know, that's another uh, way in which they're very much unlike their competitors. Um, in order to get this story, and also when I started working on the story, the primaries had all passed away. Harry and Esther had died. And as you pointed out, both the, the brothers had died. So it became a bit of an investigative journey. It was uh, quite interesting. But I ended up uh, just keeping at it, and I was able to interview hundreds of people who work there, uh, other family members, close associates of the family, to in order to really get this this uh, portrait of this family that uh, started what, as you described, is a, has become more than just a fast food chain, but a cult phenomenon. We've talked about how the company is private, um, but that's not for a lack of trying from investors of all kinds, hoping that they might go public. It would be one of the most anticipated IPOs if that were to happen. Any sense that uh, Lindsay Snyder, now the sole heir, would move in that direction? Well, that was a big question when she took over. The way um, the family trust was set up was because she was so young and she's the only heir to the Snyder family. Let me just point out that Harry and Esther were very specific that they wanted the company to remain in family hands in blood lineal descendants. And because of the tragedies of their sons dying prematurely, there was only one. So they set up this trust where she would inherit... um, a third of the company upon turning 25, another third upon turning 30, and the remainder when she turned 35, which was last year. There was some question about what she would do with the company. It was hers to do with whatever she wanted. But it seems like she hews to this family philosophy of also keeping in and out private and family owned. That's the way it appears. That's, you know, from all intents and purposes, her activity shows that. And the statements, the few statements that she's made publicly have also adhered to that. You have done a lot of business reporting. And I wonder if there are other companies out there like in and out or do you just think it is um, unique and something that other companies could learn from? I, th- I think it's unique. I think there are definitely aspects that other companies try to emulate, and there are some, you know, that do so better than others. But I think what's interesting about In-N-Out is much of their success grew organically 
And they hewed to this philosophy that the Snyders, you know, put in place that I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, which was just really simple, (laughs) quality, cleanliness and service. Treat your employees well, treat your customers well, don't um, cut on profits. And they've shown, you know, counterintuitively to sort of the way American success is usually defined that they're hugely successful. I think that, um, you know, I think they have this relationship with their customers that is really strong. I think that's carried them through, you know, the years in in a number of ways. And I think what's interesting about what they've done is they've not really commercialized any of these aspects. I think they've been very respective of all these things and stayed true to course. And that's why I think when fast food goes through the ups and downs of the industry, you know, the slings and arrows of of public um, condemnation and so on and so forth, In-N-Out Burger has largely been removed from all of that. What do you think is ahead for their future? Well, in in my opinion, I think it's about expansion. I mean, as you said, uh, In-N-Out is moving into Colorado. That's the seventh state for the chain in 70 years. And if you think about it in the, these terms, they opened the same year that the McDonald's brothers opened McDonald's oh. in pretty much the same geographical area. Um, to date, um, or the last time I checked, rather, there are probably over 30,000 McDonald's around the world. There's, you know, less than 350 In-N-Out burgers yeah, speaking um, of that in America. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Stacey, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. Thank you for having me. Business reporter Stacey Perman wrote the 2009 book In-N-Out Burger, a behind-the-counter look at the fast food chain that breaks all the rules. We spoke with her as Colorado awaits its first in and out location. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us. In-N-Out.